Thank you, Belinda. Well, good morning, Life Point. How are y'all? Wonderful. If you have Bibles or phone apps, you can open them to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. We're going to look at Nehemiah 1.11 through 2.3 today. While you're opening it, let me just uh, orient us. We are in week three of a three-week sermon series called The Jesus-Centered Life. Uh, as Belinda mentioned. And in week one, if you, if you don't remember, if you weren't here, we talked about uh, the idea of Jesus living in your heart. You know, as Christians, we say this, you know, have you invited Jesus in your heart or have you asked Jesus in your heart or have you prayed and asked Jesus in your heart? Does Jesus live in your heart? They're kind of this internal Jesus language. And if you remember, uh, the way we drew the diagram here, to say that Jesus is in your heart uh, is actually uh, kind of like saying this. Keep in mind that the heart is the center of the human being. It's where your will resides. And so when we ask Jesus into our heart, we're basically saying that Jesus takes up residence there, right next to your will in the core of your being, and he is affecting and transforming your will. He's constantly challenging and transforming that, and the result of this continual process of Jesus living inside your heart is this mature transformation, the spiritual growth. Now, the point we tried to make two weeks ago uh, was this, that it's possible for you to ask dead Jesus in your heart, and that is the Jesus of moral philosophy. Jesus who was a good teacher and taught you the right things to do and the wrong things to avoid, and that what you asked into your heart is this concept of just trying to be a good person under the worldview of this moral teacher, Jesus. And so the challenge was not to ask dead Jesus into your heart, but to ask alive Jesus to come into your heart. It was two weeks ago, is Jesus in your heart. Uh, last week, what we talked about here is this idea of Jesus having a heart for the nations. It is true, the Bible tells us, that Jesus has this burden, this mission to reach the nations for the glory of God, and that the nations are on his heart. And so two weeks ago was, is Jesus in your heart? One week ago, the nations are on Jesus's heart. And today what I want to do is I want to take those two concepts and connect the dots here. And to set that up this morning, the way we're going to connect those dots, uh, I want to uh, introduce you to one of my favorite movies to watch during Christmas. And um, I'll just kind of say this. If, if, if you guys remember, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing the vast majority of you were alive in 1994. Uh, but in 1994, it, it was probably the best era, the best single year for American cinema by any metric, whether you want to look at box office receipts or you want to look at uh, awards that were passed out, just the number of iconic films that came through in the year 1994, it's impressive. Just, I mean, I'll just kind of start with this. Forrest Gump, The Lion King, The Shawshank Redemption. For them, those of you who like a little more hardcore movies, Pulp Fiction, okay? Dumb and Dumber. There we go, that's our crowd right here, Dumb and Dumber. You're like... <laughs> Forrest Gump, I don't know what you're talking about. Oscar award-winning Tom Hanks. Oh, Dumb and Dumber, yeah. I'll watch that on repeat, right. No, Dumb and Dumber, uh, these are the films that when I mean, even the, the bad films were really, really good. Angels in the Outfield, Little Big League, like, okay? These are just some of the films. Now, with such an amazing year of films, seriously, you should, I, I'm just gonna say this as a public service announcement. You should Google search and look up the Wikipedia page for 1994 in film and just look through all of those uh, list. In fact, Ben Fawcett, our life groups pastor, and Isaac Trevino, our communications director, and I sat in my office one day and went year by year starting in 1990, kind of through 2005, and looked at like be the best years. And we got to 94. We'd seen like 70 to 80 percent of those films. It's just incredible. With such a year like that, you would expect when it comes Christmas time that there is going to be just this 
blockbuster, amazing film that came out. And there was a film that came out for Christmas time that is actually a pretty impressive Christmas film, underrated in my opinion in terms of the Christmas canon. It's a film called The Santa Claus. Do we have anybody who has watched The Santa Claus? Okay, that's the clause with the E, not just with S. It's the last line of a contract. You know, it's that clause. And it stars uh, Tim Allen, who played Tim, the tool man Taylor, right? Home Improvement was kind of at the, the peak of its popularity. You know, the guy was like, oh, 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 right? You guys remember Home Improvement? Man, okay. So for Christmas, you should binge watch Home Improvement. That's just my recommended uh, kind of application point from the sermon today. Um, so Tim Allen plays Scott Calvin in this film. And the way that it's set up, uh, Santa Claus comes and lands on Scott Calvin's house, falls off his roof, lands in a little snow pile, pff, and then disappears magically, leaving his Santa Claus outfit there. And Scott Calvin and his son go and they find the outfit. And uh, uh, Scott Calvin, for whatever reason, decides to put it on and assume the responsibilities of Santa, uh, dropping off all the toys at everybody's home uh, for Christmas you know, Eve. And then uh, at the end of his tour, he is taken to the North Pole where he uh, meets Bernard and this whole host of elves. And Bernard basically tells him, hey, on this card you received in the pocket, uh, lists the Santa Claus, meaning uh, it's this last line of the contract. It states that if you put on the Santa uh, Claus costume, you will become Santa Claus. You're now Santa Claus until you die. And uh, Scott Calvin's character, you know, he's saying, no, 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 I don't want to be Santa Claus. I don't want to be Santa Claus. And Bernard's like, it's too late. You're, you're now Santa Claus. It's, it's going to happen. And over the course of the next couple of scenes, next couple of sequences, all these Santa Claus things that we associate with Santa Claus start to be birthed in Scott Calvin. All of a sudden, he like all this, he he wants milk and cookies, and you know he starts getting fatter, and his hair turns white, and he grows a beard, and he just has a strange desire to sit in a park and have kids come by and tell them what they want for Christmas. Right? All these things just start to happen in him, and uh, it's just this really great picture for the Christian life. But I want you to watch the film here, watch the little the little sequence, and then I want to talk about it more uh, to set up the morning. So take a look. How do I look? Nice? You've got sash. You're right. This completes the ensemble. All right. Okay, look, so what? You put on a little weight. A little weight? Does this look like a little weight to you? Weight can fluctuate from year to year. Fluctuate? You make it sound like I'm retaining water. I've gained 45 pounds in a week. Pete, what's happening to me? What's your diet like? Milk and cookies? Really? But I don't finish all the milk. Well, then there is your problem. Just try to cut back on the sweets, okay? <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. How fast does hair grow? Facial hair. What? I shave in the morning and in the afternoon. I look like this. Well, it could be a hormonal imbalance. That would explain the mood swings. So there you go. And the mood swings he's talking about there is he's become more jolly and happy about things. So, so yeah, so this, I think, is a really great picture of the Christian life uh, for this reason. He puts on the suit, becomes Santa Claus. All of a sudden, these new desires get birthed in him, this desire to eat milk and cookies when he's lactose intolerant, the desire to listen to Christmas music, the desire to think about toys, the desire uh, for, child, like, for children to take care of children and that kind of stuff, the desire to wear red all the time, the white hair, the beard, the, the, the rotund size, all of this stuff starts to happen inside of him. And that's a great picture for the Christian life because, uh, as the Bible tells us, when you become a Christian, 
Similarly, when you ask Jesus to come and live in your heart, one of the things that starts to happen is he's transforming your will as he starts to birth all these new desires in you. He, he gives you desire to pray. He gives you desire to read the Bible. He puts a desire in you to want to gather with other believers and to worship corporately. He gives you a desire uh, to want to join with smaller groups of believers for prayer and for fellowship. And he puts in you a desire for the nations. And that's what connects all of this today. If Jesus is in your heart, then it's true that he's going to put a desire for the nations on your heart. If Jesus is in your heart, then the nations, life point, they're going to be on your heart. And that's where we're going to go today, and that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah. But before we jump into that, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for uh, your word, and thank you for Nehemiah, and thank you for Jesus uh, who makes all this possible. And I pray that you would uh, receive today's worship service uh, as worship uh, for your good, or for your glory, and for the good of the people who follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Nehemiah, which is uh, conveniently printed in your bulletin if you want to read along here. If you have Bibles or apps, you can read along, and it'll be on the screen as well. Just to set this up as you guys are reorienting yourself, Nehemiah is a Jew living in Persia. He's, li he's living in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, he's living in Sush, which is modern-day Persia, Iran. He's li living in the capital uh, of the Persian kingdom, and uh, he has probably lived his entire life there, grew up there, gone to school there, got a job there, has a family there. He's a follower of, of Yahweh. He's just kind of making, he lives in, in Sus, okay, and Again, just normal, church-going, good guy, never really thought about anything, never done anything radical. This is not a guy who stands on the street corner and preaches. This isn't a guy who goes on mission trips. This is just a normal, church-going guy. And he happens to be the, the cupbearer to the king uh, in Susa. And one day he is talking with a friend, and the friend says, Hey, have you heard what's going on in Israel? They have tried to reestablish Israel as this nation, but there are all these invading forces that are causing acts of terrorism there, and they're unsafe. And for whatever reason, Nehemiah starts to just weep over this. And here's what he, he writes as he's talking to the Lord and praying in verse 11 of chapter 1. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, who's this man? He tells us. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? My point, what's going on here in this text? Nehemiah, a normal follower of God, again, who lives in another city, not in Israel, but another city, all of a sudden asked a friend just randomly on a day, hey, what's going on in Israel? Friend tells him, and Something happens in him. He becomes what the king describes as sad in the heart. That's really interesting language. What that is basically saying is the nation of Israel is now on his heart, and he's burdened for Israel. Again, never lived there. He may be ethnically related to that, but never lived there. But for whatever reason, 
God has decided to put this burden on his heart. The way we might even say it is, the Lord, Yahweh, is in his heart, so the nations, in particular Israel, is now on his heart. And it's not something that's just internal, it is affecting everything around him, so much so that his boss, the king, says, you look and appear to be sad of the heart. And he says, I am, I'm sad for this nation, this, this, this people that I'm from, I'm, I'm burdened for them. And what I hope we take away from this is we see that here, which is true throughout Scripture, is that people who follow Jesus, people who have Jesus in their heart, the nations are on their heart. People, it's normal, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, for the nations to be on your heart. It is normal, if you're a follower of Jesus, for the nations to be on your heart. If there's anything you're going to post to social media, if you Instagram it or Twitter it or Facebook it or whatever, you, you, should, you should post this. It's normal, if Jesus is in your heart, for the nations to be on your heart. There's a guy in the New Testament named Peter. Peter's a fisherman, meets Jesus, asks Jesus into his heart. Guess what? Jesus puts the nations in particular, this people group called uh, Jews, on his heart. So he has this whole gospel ministry trying to reach Jews. A few chapters later, you meet this guy named Paul. Paul meets Jesus, asks Jesus into his heart. Guess what happens? Uh, Jesus puts this burden for Gentiles, non-Jews, on his heart, and he has this whole gospel ministry trying to reach Gentiles. Paul is friends with this guy named Barnabas. Barnabas asked Jesus into his heart. Jesus puts the nations on his heart, in particular Gentiles, in particular uh, the people of uh, Syria. Barnabas says, I want to go reach people in Syria. He's traveling with Paul. Paul at some point goes, I don't want to reach people in Syria. I have a burden for the people of Cyprus. And they split ways. Why? Because God has put different nations on their heart. But the principle still holds true. Throughout the Bible, if you're a follower in Jesus, if you have Jesus in your heart, then the nations are going to be on your heart. And this is normal. It's normal not only in the Bible, it's normal throughout church history. If you were to pull every Christian together and say, hey, are the nations on your heart? Every Christian would speak with one voice. Yes. If Jesus is in your heart, the nations are on your heart. Now, as I've said this, here's my suspicion. My suspicion is for us today, not that many of us are sitting here listening to this going, I disagree. If you love Jesus, you're going to hate the nations, right? I, I don't think we have a lot of people here who are saying that. Uh, what I do think we probably have, and I would include myself in this, is people go, yeah, you know what? I think, you know, Jesus is in my heart, but I, I might, if pressed, admit that I'm indifferent to the nations, meaning I know I'm supposed to be for the nations, but I'm not really sure what that looks like, and I kind of feel somewhat indifferent towards that, and I'm just, there's just a general sense of confusion about the nations. And so I, I want to ask this question and unpack it for the remainder of our time today, and that's this. What if Jesus is in my heart, but the nations aren't on my heart? Okay? And I want to answer it kind of in three ways. If you are here today and you say, hey, I think I should be for the nations, but if I'm, if I'm honest, I, I admit that the nations aren't really on my heart. They don't burden me. It doesn't keep me awake at night. I don't think about it. Why is that? Why might it be that the nations aren't on my heart? And I want to answer it in three ways. Number one, I want to say uh, that the nations you might not be on your heart or you may be indifferent because you're confused about what the nations are. We'll address that. Number two, it might be uh, because uh, you are insulating yourself or you're doing something to, to, to hinder God's burdening effect on you, and we'll talk about that, or there's a third option. But let's deal with the first option for it. Why is it the nations aren't on my heart if I'm a Christian, Jesus is on my heart? Okay? 
And the first way, I think, is because maybe you have a confused understanding of what the nations are. So let's just clarify terminology. Anytime you're having a conversation, a discussion with someone, the first thing you do is you clarify terms, right? So let's clarify terms here. When the Bible mentions this word nations, um, the Bible doesn't mean political or geopolitical entities like we understand it today. I think for many of us, when we hear the word nation, we think political entity bound by a legal constitution with kind of borders that are protected by a war, a warring army or something like that, right? Okay. When the Bible uses the word nations, the Bible means people groups, okay? People groups uh, unified by common characteristics like language, ethnicity, culture, values, morals, things like that, okay? So everywhere when the Bible mentions nations, when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, he's not talking about countries, he's talking about people groups. Wherever there are people groups unified by common characteristics such as language, you need to go and reach them. That's what Jesus is saying. So the Bible is talking about nations in terms of people groups, and we can really think of them according to Jesus's definition, reaching people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We can think about them really in three kind of uh, emanating circles here. These are people groups that live around your house, your city, in the world. Now, my suspicion is that for most of us, one of the things that hinders us from thinking about the nation is we immediately jump to the world. That if we're going to go reach the nations, we, we go reach the world. We go, we go across the pond somewhere. In fact, if you read any of the literature of the early 1900s in America, it's really interesting. Like it was like you would, you'd read this typical conversion story and it was, you know, it goes like, Joe walked the aisle, prayed to receive Christ, went to missions training, then he went to a country we've never heard of, no one ever saw him again. Hopefully we'll see Joe in heaven. And that was like the common story. It's like, if you really are wanting to be a missionary, you've got to go to the ends of the world. And what was really interesting, I think at that time, which shows a very American-centric and Western-centric worldview, is like the, the scariest place to go is like the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Only at that time, it wasn't called the Congo. The Democratic Republic of the Congo it was just the Congo, right? Like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, like you're going to the Congo. Like it was some scary place and no one ever heard of it, like Martians lived there or something. And so if you were a real Christian, you got on a boat that didn't have great ventilation and you went to the Congo, right? And I think many of us, when we think about the nations, and even as I'm talking about that, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Jesus, please don't convict me to go to that scary place, which I've never heard from. It's like, if you're going to do missions, you get on a spacecraft, like, you know, there's some kind of, you know, Virgin Atlantic spacecraft that's going to send you to Mars, and that's where you're going, right? And that's the only option. Anything less than that, you're just a bad Christian. And so I want to make sure, again, we clarify this. Yeah, some of you may be called to go. God may put a burden on your heart for nations, people groups that are across the pond, right, in another part of the, the, the globe, and, and, and that's okay, but there are two other options I want you to keep in mind that I think Jesus equally wants you to reach, in fact, it may be true that Jesus wants you to start somewhere else. Like maybe eventually he might send you to the Congo or he might send you to Europe or he might send you uh, to Latin America, South America, to Canada. Wouldn't that be great doing missions in Canada? It's like, listen, you're going to go to Canada. We've got this nice log cabin in a remote village for you, okay? You're going to wear stuff like this all the time with a little, you know, little vest. You're going to drink hot tea. There's Tim Hortons donuts. It's great. And if any of you have ever been to Canada, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say Tim Hortons donuts. Anyway, so there are other places I think Jesus might have you start. First is this, people groups that live around your house. Think about that. What people groups unified by common language and characteristics live around your house in the four corners of your neighborhood? What would they look like? 
okay? Let me give you an example of this. When I was in seminary, I had a friend named Casey. Casey was an ex-football player. He played football in college and then kind of went to seminary and didn't really have a clear calling to ministry, but kind of was trying to figure things out. And his dad owned a trailer park. So he lived in a trailer park. Uh, That's where he lived when he was a bachelor and then in his first years of marriage. Uh, And so whenever we go visit Casey, we go to his, like, his trailer home, like in this trailer park. And he would just tell me that like the, the vast majority of people who lived in his house, this people group, they were maturing families with teenagers. And so it was all these like families in their forties with teenagers, middle schoolers, kind of high schoolers that lived around him. And he kind of stumbled upon kind of just this ministry to these teenagers who lived in his area. Again, trying to figure out kind of God's call to ministry for him. And there were teenagers and they're, they're the ones who lived around his house. And I kind of joked with him. I was like, dude, God's going to call you to, to student ministry. He was like, no, I never want to go into student ministry, right? Like that's kind of, you know, where you are. You're like, no, that, that would, that's not me. Well, I remember one day we, uh, it was like a year or two later, our wives had sent us to the mall because it was like, Black Friday or something like that, there was like cheap shopping and they were like, you guys dress like bums. We're married now. You need to dress better, right? One of the wives are like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. Husbands are like, yep, I remember those days, right? Uh, so we both went, we went to JCPenney, we got our stuff. And I remember we were in this Dillard's kind of store thing and Casey's over standing in this kind of t-shirt section. He sees this white shirt and he's looking at the white shirt and I can just tell he's just standing there for a while. And so I'm like, this is kind of weird. You know, I kind of walk over and I see he's crying as he's looking at this white shirt. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this ex-football player crying, looking at a white t-shirt? Like, is he falling in love with the t-shirt? Is there some kind of like he's remembering kind of when he was in, you know, glory days of football? Like, what's going on here? Like, this is really strange. Like, again, this 6'3", you know, giant football player openly weeping in the middle of Dillard's at a white t-shirt, and I'm his friend standing next to him. There's no scenario that prepares you for this, fellas, right? It's like, oh yeah, I've been there before. No, you're just like, I have no clue what to do, right? And so I'm just like standing next to him. I'm like, Casey, what's like, What's going on here? Are you okay? Do I need to call somebody? Kind of, what's going on? And he said, this t-shirt costs $80. And I went, okay. He's like, it has an Armani label on it, and this t-shirt costs $80. And I went, okay. And he said, the kids in my neighborhood will will get extra jobs to try to save money to buy a t-shirt like this so that when they go to school, they'll have the right labels and the other kids won't make fun of them. He said, my heart breaks for this reality. He said that, that, that kids, that adolescents, they're just so torn apart by shifting identities that they'll dress up in labels hoping that they can make friends at school and be accepted. And he's like, this is just, someone needs to stand in the gap there and be an advocate for adolescents and tell them they can find their identity in something more secure like Jesus. And Casey looks back on that moment and says that was the moment his heart became burdened for the people groups in his, around his house. And Casey then, from there, stepped into student ministry. You want to know why people are lifelong student pastors? It's because they have a burden for the people groups around their house, such, such as people groups like, like students, like adolescents who have a common language. It's called texting emojis. Have you seen this? Right, any of you have students, they have that common language. All they say is like LOL and all this stuff, and you're like, 
you know, ABC412, ha, 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 ha. And you're like, what does that mean? They're like, oh, you don't know, right? And they keep you out. That's a people group. And guess what? Jesus has a heart for that nation, the nation of adolescents in America. And so he calls certain people to serve and be ministers and missionaries to that people group. They're called student pastors and leaders in a student ministry. And that was Casey. And Casey jumped in and has now been a student pastor for the last decade serving adolescent groups. That's people groups around your house. And, and I just want to ask you this. That's an example. What are the people groups around your house? Maybe it's, it's business workers and, and teachers and doctors and people in the medical profession, people in outside sales and inside sales. Maybe it's, it's people who have whiter skin or people who have darker skin and Maybe they all speak a common language or have a common rhythm of life. Guess what? Might it be that one of the things God wants to do here this morning is call you to be a missionary to the people groups around your house? That's that group. The second or the, the, the last group here. We've done the world. We've done your house. How about your city? The city, the people groups around your city. Again, just take your neighborhood, expand it to, to Plano, to Frisco, to Allen, to McKinney, to Collin County. What kind of people groups are here? I mean, if you just did demographic studies, you would say Collin County is basically made up of people who are working professionals, middle class to upper middle class to lower middle to lower upper class, uh, who typically tend to vote Republican. They tend to have conservative values. Uh, they tend to be involved in tech or finance or medical profession, or what's really interesting, law enforcement. That's like one of the top things in Collin County. Strangely, if you look at any of the demographics, th these are people around our city, uh, or maybe just to, to specialize it, guess what? They're people around your cubicle. And so I want to ask you this, might it be, LifePoint, that the reason God gave you a job and where you work is not only so that you can have an income to help support your family and to fund ministry, but also so that, that those people, those coworkers in the cubicle around you might be the people group around your city he wants you to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it possible, and I know your HR person may have kind of you know, dampen this a little bit, but is it possible that the reason God gave you that job is not only to earn an income, but to reach your coworkers for Christ? I think it's extremely possible. In fact, the balance of probability, according to scripture, is that it's not, not just possible, it's highly probable that God puts you in that cubicle next to that person so that you could uh, start spiritual conversations and help lead them towards believing in Jesus. Hey, you should listen to your HR people. You should, but there's there's ways around it. Probably getting up with a bullhorn during your staff meeting and, and proclaiming the gospel, not HR approved. And you know what? May not also be Jesus approved, right? I don't know that that's Jesus as a method, right? But building relationships, going out to lunch with people, asking real questions, asking about the state of their soul. And then at some point when the moment's right, maybe when you're not at work, you're offline somewhere saying, hey, man, I, I would love to just pray for you. That's really okay. And, and here's what we know biblically. Here's what we know biblically. We know this. If Jesus is on your heart, then the nations are going to be, or Jesus is in your heart, then the nations are going to be on your heart. And one clear group that you know day in and day out is your coworkers who exist in the, in the cubicle or in the, the chain of offices around you. Maybe if you're 
uh, not you know, working, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom like my wife is, and your job is to raise kids, and maybe you're, you've started the whole like limousine service thing that stay-at-home moms do. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, you don't, you're not in limousines, you're in minivans and SUVs, but you still limo people from point to point, right? Okay, maybe part of the, 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 the people group God's put around you is these other moms or dads who are taking care of their kids so that their spouse can work, and they go to the parks together, and they go to the play things together, and they go to the things together, and they're in the PTA together. And maybe, maybe it's possible that God has put you there, not just so your kids can get an education uh, or can have some extracurriculars, but so that you can reach those moms and dads for Christ. It's a people group, the common language around your city. So life point, the, the, to clarify here, it's normative if Jesus is in your heart for the nations to be on your heart. And when we talk about nations, we're not just talking about across the pond, we're talking about people groups who are around your house, people groups in your city, people groups around the world. So that's the first thing I want to clarify. Hopefully that brings clarity. So one of the reasons that we kind of hinder this is we, we uh, don't understand what nations are. We've clarified that. But here's the next thing. One of the reasons that we don't uh, have a bigger burden for the nations, one of the reasons we may be indifferent is because we're doing some things to grieve the Holy Spirit's work in our life. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever heard about that or read that and think that sounds really weird. Later, Paul says, don't, don't hinder the Holy Spirit. But it's this idea that God's going to start, I mean, if we'll go back to this, this thing, okay? Jesus is going to start transforming your will. He's going to start impacting. He's going to tell you things. He's going to start that process. And then we do something to just go and turn it off, right? And here are the four things I see, not only myself, but I see others doing, and this has been consistent across human history. Now, the four things we do to say to stop God's transforming work in our life, specifically as he clarifies the burden for the nations on our heart. First thing we do is this, we insulate, meaning we, we do something to insulate ourselves. Typically in Collin County, it means around money, okay? We get enough money in our bank account, we don't have to think about things. Uh, I have this friend we were talking the other day, and I will clean up the conversation uh, a little bit. But basically what he said was, um, everybody has a number. And at that number, when you get there, you, you basically have forget you money. That's kind of what he said, right? Once you have this certain number, like two, two and a half million dollars, you can put it in T-bills. You know, with interest, you're making between $80,000 and $100,000 a year passively. That's called forget you money. That means no matter what happens, if you get offended, you can just say, forget you, I'm moving on. Because you have enough money to do whatever you want. It's almost a consequence-free lifestyle that you have when you have that much cash in the bank. And I think for many of us, we've kind of bought into this American dream and, and made it the dominant narrative that we live in life. Not that it's a bad thing, but we've made it more important than the biblical narrative. And so we want to get to a point where we have money in the bank and we can be insulated from the external problems in life. And the danger with this approach is that we can start by insulating ourselves from external economic problems. And we can also begin to insulate ourselves internally from the movement of God. We can have so much money or so much stuff or so much around, so many of these accoutrements that we insulate ourselves from God's movement internally. And so what God wants us to do there is to put on with each of these <clears throat> some helpful spiritual habits. And so if we have a problem of insulation, what God wants us to do is to increase our giving. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You can prioritize lifestyle or you can prioritize giving. 
And so to keep us from insulating ourselves from the movement of the Holy Spirit, we practice giving and we give till it hurts so that we can keep ourselves vulnerable to the Holy Spirit's movement. I had this professor in seminary, it was really funny. He'd say this all the time. Uh, he grew up kind of in a charismatic tradition. And so we would, we, would tell, we would ask him all the time, like, hey, what's God telling you? You're a theology professor, what's God telling you? And he said, you know what? I actually have had a hard time praying over the last 20 years, which is not what you want your seminary professor to say, but I digress. He goes, here's the thing. Anytime I pray and ask God what he wants me to do, he always tells me the same answer. He says, I want you to give all your money away. He's like, and I don't like that. So I just stopped praying, <laughs> right? He's just being honest there. He's like, every time I pray, God says, give all your money away. And I don't like that. So I just kind of stopped praying because I know what God wants me to do. And I think there's some truth in that. Uh, there's part of us, we don't want to, to give our money away because that leaves us economically vulnerable. And if we're economically vulnerable, we have to depend on someone other than ourselves, like God, right? And if we have to depend on God, we're going to have these hard economic times where we're going to have to talk to God more in prayer and ask him to really sustain us and then trust him. And then he's going to talk back to us. And maybe if he talks back to us when we're having to trust him so he can sustain us because we don't have enough money, then God might say something like he might clarify the people group he wants us to reach. And so to guard ourselves from, from greed and materialism and insulation, we practice the discipline of giving. Second thing we can do, second thing we do to, to grieve the Holy Spirit's work in our life, this clarifying role is we isolate ourselves. We get rear entry garages, we uh, you know, keep the earbuds in when we walk around, we try to talk to as few people as possible, we, we practice isolation. In fact, in Collin County, I think we've made kind of an industry habit of this, right? All of our homes, most of them have rear entry garages, we never know our neighbors, there are no block parties, we kind of just rent, you know, buy this house for a while, then we sell it, we buy another house for a while, then we sell it, we buy another house. We don't really uh, build any kind of community relationships. Uh, and so I'll, I'll just kind of, kind of prove this to you. This, this bears out. And this is, look, this is me. So this is probably you too. Just think how many days of the week you can move from your living room to your car on your commute into your private elevator up to your office space and never really have to interact with another human being. Like how, I, I mean, just think about how often that is. That's, that's a lot for me. If you can talk to anybody who works here, I will, I will leave my living room kitchen, get into my car. I have a 15 minute commute to work. I will put the earbuds in as soon as I arrive, turn off the car and I'll be on the earbuds walking to my office here. I will close the door and I will start doing work. And there on Mondays, I will often do work for a long period of time. And if I didn't have staff meetings, I could probably do all my work open my office, like I'll have lunch in the office, got the ramen noodles, I'm, I'm good to go, right? And so I will then leave my office, put my earbuds in, get into, you know, walk past everybody as they're like doing this. And I'm like, can't hear you, you got earbuds in. I will get in my car, I will drive my 15 minutes back home and then I'll see my family. And I will not interact with anybody the entire day. And I love that because I'm, I'm a guy who doesn't need any distractions. So I would love being isolated. I would get so much work done. But the problem is, probably like you would understand, if I, I live the entirety of my life that way, I will isolate myself from the people around me who have needs. And God may want me to be a minister to the people around me. These aren't just people who are meant to distract me. These are people he wants me, they're nations. He wants me to engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the way we combat isolating ourselves is we practice community. Community. 
We intentionally put ourselves around other believers who ask us this question, how's your soul? And we're like, I don't want to talk about those things. Let's talk about the cowboys. I don't want to talk about internal things, right? And like, no, let me, how can I pray for you? Oh, I have to be honest and vulnerable here. I have to trust Jesus. And with these people asking me these questions and caring about me, it opens up the prayer communication with God that he might clarify the burden he has for the nations for us. So we insulate, we isolate. And the third thing is we medicate. We medicate with food and strong drink in particular, but we medicate. How many of you have just had a bad day and you're like, I need another glass of wine, right? You're just like, Ugh. Or how many of you have had a bad day and you're like, okay, I, I know I never say this, but go to the emergency box that's glassed in, get the you know, mallet, break it, get that cookie dough log out. I need to just consume it right now, right? For me, it's, it's Nestle Toll House bags of chocolate, chip, uh, chocolate chips, just the, just the chocolate chips, not even the cookies, right? I don't even mess with the dough. That's too complicated. Just give me the milk chocolate chips, and I just eat them like Skittles, right? Just, you know, I, if I'm having a bad day, I go, right? How many of you have ever, let's just kind of be real. How many of you have ever been convicted about something, and you go, I need a glass of wine or some more cookie dough or some chocolate, right? Right? Okay. So we medicate ourselves, and the way, we, the way we move past this, the way we make sure we allow the Holy Spirit to continue convicting us is we practice fasting. We deny ourselves food and drink and Toll House chocolate chips and cookie dough and all those things for a season of time that we might tell our body we don't have to rely on food, we can rely on Jesus, that it might stretch us into more prayer, that we might hear from Jesus as he clarifies the burden for the nations on our heart. We, we don't insulate, we give, we don't isolate, we practice community, we don't medicate, we fast for a season to hear from God. And number four, fourth thing, fourth thing we do to hinder the Holy Spirit, we busy our calendar, right? We busy our calendar. Uh, if you were to look at your calendar right now, would there be any blank space on there at all? Or is it just one thing nonstop from like six in the morning to 10 at night, right? It's just busy, busy, busy. Busyness is a hindrance to God's movement in our life. In fact, uh, I had a pastor friend who used to tell me when he was mentoring me uh, when I was in college, he said, Doug, listen, uh, if Satan wants to hinder you in your life, he's going to tempt you. But if he can't tempt you, he'll just make you busy. And you'll be so busy, you won't hear the move of God in your life. And so what would it look like for you, LifePoint, to not just let the social calendar dictate your personal calendar, but to say, hey, there are certain pockets of time where I am not going to concede uh, to the culture. I'm not going to busy my calendar, but I'm going to be disciplined uh, with my calendar, okay? So I'm going to create openings. Uh, I'm going to create solitude, some times to just think here. I'm gonna say, hey, in the morning time from here to here, nothing else gets in. That's my devotional time. Or in the evening time from here to here, that's my devotional time. On Thursday night, that's a date night. Or if I'm not married, uh, then it's just a friend time where I'm gonna go hang out with people. On Sunday evenings, that's my life group time. Nothing else gets planned. I don't care if the Cowboys are kicking off. That's the time when I wanna make myself available for Jesus to clarify the burden in my life for the nations that I might reach the nations, the people groups around me, and be glad in Christ, that they would be glad in Christ and I would be glad in Christ. What would it look like, LifePoint, to not just let the social calendar dictate your calendar, but to free up some time in your world? These are the four ways that we 
hinder the Holy Spirit's work in our life and it makes the nations confusing. And the last thing we do, which is actually not on a page here. So number one, we are confused about nations. That's why we may be indifferent towards it. Number two, we do these things. But number three, it might be that we don't have a heart for the nations because of the basic thing here. Because Jesus is in our heart. Again, if you don't have Jesus in your heart, don't be surprised if the nations aren't on your heart. And so maybe you're here today and you've never asked a live Jesus in your heart. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, it's time for me to believe in you. I confess that I'm a sinner and I want to believe in your resurrection power. Whatever it means to be saved, you save me right now and I'm praying to receive Christ. Maybe that's what you got to do here today. You've got to put on the Santa outfit before you can have the jolly stomach. And the reason you don't have the jolly stomach is because you haven't put Santa outfit on in the first place. And so if the nations aren't on your heart, then maybe Jesus isn't in your heart. So I want to encourage you and implore you today, if that's the case, please do not leave here without believing in Jesus. In fact, my staff team and I will be in the connection room right after this. We'd love to meet with you and help you uh, understand what it means to believe in Jesus if you have questions. So I want to just make sure you believe in Jesus before you leave today. Here's how I want to wrap things up. I want to wrap things up by just uh, talking about a common story. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard it before. It's in Luke's gospel. And so basically this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, hey, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he asks a follow-up question, because he's a lawyer, that's what lawyers do. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story. So there's a man who's traveling on this dangerous road, and he's mugged, and he's beaten up, bloody, uh, bruised eyes, thrown on the side of the road. And then these two particular individuals cross by. You have a Levite and you have a priest. A priest would have been someone who understood the Bible. This is someone who knows the Bible and thinks about the Bible. The Levite would have been someone who was a helper in the temple. He practices the Bible. So the priest would be like the preacher or the pastor in our context. The Levite would be like anybody who's in our servant team here, okay? So the preacher walks by and just says, you know, on the other side. And all the volunteer servants, they, they, they kind of walk by on the other side too, But finally, this third guy comes along and he helps out. Now, I have to ask the question, why is it the first two people walked past, the person who knows the Bible and the person who does the Bible? And I have to think, or I have to assume, these aren't bad people. My suspicion is this. The reason they walked past is because they were insulated or because they weren't practicing community, they were isolated, or because they were medicated, but probably it was one of these things. They were too busy Okay? They had somewhere to be, so they couldn't stop and help this person out. Think about this. How many times in your world are you driving around, it's a rainy day, you see this like old grandma on the side of the road, like her car's broken down, and she's changing a tire out there by herself in her little dress. She's got the little walker that she's trying to pick up the thing and put it on. And you see it, and in your mind you think, oh, I should stop and, and, and help her because it's raining and she's a grandma and that's what Jesus would do. But then you get your reminder on your phone, you've got to be such and such in 15 minutes and you're like, sorry, grandma, I'll pray for you and you speed off, right? How often do we do that? We do, I do that all the time. I'm like, man, 
Man, it stinks for you, but hopefully you have kids or grandkids that are on the way. I'm just gonna assume that you do because I've gotta go to Starbucks because they're giving away free coffee. I mean, that's the pressing thing. I've gotta get to Starbucks for their holiday coffee, right? I'm too busy. I'm thinking these people, the Levite and the priest were too busy. And so they were hindered, hindering the Holy Spirit from moving and saying, stop and help this man. And this Samaritan comes along. Now here's the Samaritan. The Samaritan is a half-breed, it's a half-Jew, with something else. These were people who were, who were believers in, in Yahweh, but they worshiped in a different spot. And if you're a Jewish reader of this story, you go, oh no, he wouldn't help. This guy's low class. He would never help. And he stops. And you know what he does? He opens himself up to the movement of the Holy Spirit and says, I need to help this person. So he helps bandages this person. He takes the person to the, the innkeeper and he says, take care of your needs. Uh, take care of all of his needs. Here's the money for it. And I will come back after business. And if there are any more needs, I will pay for those. So you give him the works. That is not unlike someone finding someone on the side of the road today, taking him to an emergency room and saying, this person doesn't have insurance. You take care of them however you want and you send the bill to me, I will pay cash for it. Whatever they need, make sure they are healthy. And you know what that indicates about the Samaritan? That indicates he was burdened for that person. He was burdened because he was available and the Holy Spirit moved and Jesus was in his heart. So the nations were on his heart. So he sees nations, he's like, I gotta help. Life point today if someone was hurting, if the nations were around you, would you be like the Levite or the priest or would you be more likely to be like the Samaritan? In your heart of hearts, you know this. Would you be more like the Levite and priest or would you be like the Samaritan? I wanna challenge you today to not be the Levite or the priest, but to think about being the Samaritan, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if somehow you are indifferent or confused today, would you be so bold as to pray this prayer here? And I'm, I'm just telling you, if you pray this prayer, it's like putting on the Santa Claus outfit. Things are gonna happen, but it's this prayer right here. Jesus, would you clarify your burden in my heart for the nations? Jesus, would you clarify in my heart, your burden for the nations. Would you consider praying that today? And then watch what Jesus does as he begins to give you a heart for the people groups around your home and around our city and around the globe. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you uh, have a heart for the nations. And I do pray that you would clarify the burden on the hearts of all of these people who are here today, the people who make up Life Point Church who've gathered here today. Lord, may LifePoint Church, the, the Christians who gather, may they be the most nations-loving people in Collin County. May others in Collin County say of us, those people must really love Jesus because of the immense burden they have to reach people groups around their house, uh, houses, around their city, and around the globe. And Lord, uh, in a second, when we put money in a plate, when giving starts to take place at the very end, would you use that money to fund and to fuel missions ministry in Collin County and beyond? That Lord, LifePoint would be a church that truly does live beyond the walls of our church. And Lord, I thank you for the nations you've given us here, Lord. Clarify the burden in our hearts for your glory and for the good of LifePoint Church. It's in your name we pray, amen.